Hello everyone and welcome to Multidisciplinary Dialogue Clinical Rounds and Case Reviews with your host, Dr. Anil Harrison, who is the Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program and the Ambulatory Care Director at Toro University and St. Joseph's Medical Center Dignity Health in Stockton, California. Today we have a case review that Dr. Harrison and Dr. Paul Shu will analyze and provide treatment insights. Dr. Shu is a second year internal medicine resident at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Stockton, California. In this episode, we'll discuss metabolic alkalosis. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or the views of Consultant 360. Good morning, folks. Good morning, Dr. Harrison. Hi, Paul. Good morning. Because I was thinking about it, I was getting very sentimental. We were trying to celebrate our uh, our fourth episode anniversary. I was at the Hallmark store the other day, and uh, I saw this card that said, "You know, people are making end of the world jokes like there is no tomorrow." I thought that was this is a clever and witty thing to put on the <laughs> card. So, what's the topic today, Doctor Harrison? I think uh, Paul, we are supposed to talk about uh, metabolic alkalosis. And what is metabolic alkalosis? Well, folks, we're going to elucidate that during today's episode of this multi-part series on acid base. So I actually had a patient and I wanted to run it by you, Dr. Harrison, a 51-year-old presenting with history with hyperlipidemia, uncontrolled hypertension. For the past two years, uh, he's on amlodipine, metoprolol, and these are his labs. A sodium of 135, a potassium of 4, a chloride of 100, and a bicarb of 32. Okay. So for those out there, you know, in the uh, podcast world, the criteria for alkalosis, pH is greater than 7.45, a bicarb greater than 28. These are the criteria which confirms that the patient has metabolic alkalosis. And if you recall, our patient actually has a bicarb of 32. So now we're on this trajectory of metabolic alkalosis. Dr. Harrison, would you walk us through the common causes, please? Yeah, Paul. You know, the most common causes uh, for metabolic alkalosis are vomiting, NG suctioning, and diuretics. Mm. Uh, People, you know, start talking about Barters and Gittleman's. I just want to mention that they are not that common. Oh. So now you think about it, our patient had neither of the above. You know, he wasn't vomiting. He didn't have an NG. Hmm. and uh, supposedly he's not been on any diuretics. Now, that is what he tells us, right. no diuretics. Right. So you think about metabolic alkalosis, and there are actually two stages. There's the acute phase, also called the generation phase. For example, a person who's just started vomiting or who is undergoing nasogastric suctioning. The second stage is the maintenance phase where the kidneys, for some reason, are unable to get rid of the excess of bicarbonate. Wait, um, Dr. Harrison, mm-hmm. can you go through the pathophysiology to explain all this? Sure. So let us elaborate on this. If you take GI issues such as excessive vomiting or nasogastric suctioning or congenital chlorodiarrhea and VIPomas, what happens over there is there is a loss of hydrogen ions and chloride ions, of course. And of course, there is loss of volume. With the loss of hydrogen ions, one can get alkalosis. And of course, with volume loss, one can get contraction alkalosis. With conditions of low volume states, what happens is that renin gets stimulated in the juxtaglomerular apparatus, which stimulates the cascade of angiotensinogen, 
and you have angiotensin 1, and then you get angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 does two things. Firstly, in the proximal convoluted tubule, it causes retention of sodium and bicarbonate. And secondly, in the distal convoluted tubule, it stimulates aldosterone, wakey-wakey aldosterone. And what aldosterone does, it causes sodium and chloride retention along with potassium and hydrogen ion excretion, thus explaining how volume contraction and intravascular volume loss results in a metabolic alkalosis. In this scenario, Paul, you would agree that the urine chloride would be low. Yeah, I'm starting to see what you mean here. But I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. How does severe hypokalemia cause metabolic alkalosis, though? Sure. So what happens with severe hypokalemia, the intracellular potassium ions from within the cell, they move to outside the cell in exchange for an influx of hydrogen ions causing a metabolic alkalosis. So okay. hydrogen ions get into the cell from outside hmm. and potassium comes out. It's like you're, you're trying to maintain electrical neutrality. Correct. Uh, okay, so now I have another question for you. Mm -hmm. Why is the urine chloride low in edematous states such as concerns of heart failure, cirrhosis, and chronic renal failure uh, or nephrosis? Uh, good question. Hmm. So if you consider these edematous states, mm -hmm. Either the hydrostatic pressure is elevated or the oncotic pressure is low, which causes extravasation of fluid resulting in edema. But the effective intravascular volume is low, and hence angiotensin 2 and aldosterone are active, just as with the low volume states we discussed in a, a minute ago. So just exactly how do you approach a patient with metabolic alkalosis then? Like, do you have a method? Do... Uh, go about sorting through the various categories? So, you know, the very first thing is I would recommend doing a thorough history and physical and assessing the volume status of the patient. So if you look at the slide on the left-hand side of the slide, the volume status is low. The blood pressure is low normal. Therefore, it makes sense that we need to consider contraction alkalosis, vomiting, nasogastric suctioning, diuretics, Bartos, and Gittleman syndrome in the differential diagnosis. If the volume status is normal to high, the important thing is to check blood pressure and serum potassium. If the blood pressure and potassium are normal, you might want to consider milk alkylase syndrome. If the blood pressure is normal and the potassium is low, the metabolic alkalosis could be because of hypokalemia. If a person has low potassium, because as you know, low potassium also causes in the proximal convoluted tubule to reabsorb bicarbonate while also excreting hydrogen ions in the collecting duct. So severe hyperkalemia can give you a metabolic alkalosis because of this. Going further, if the blood pressure is high and the potassium is low, this possibly represents mineralocorticoid excess. Mm. So the next thing would be to check renin and aldosterone levels. If the renin is low, but the aldosterone is elevated, this probably is primary hyperaldosteronism. But if both renin and aldosterone are elevated, both of them are elevated, then this possibly is secondary hyperaldosteronism. If both renin and aldosterone are normal, this could be Cushing syndrome. And 
If both renin and aldosterone are low, consider that the person might be getting exogenous steroids or might be consuming licorice or the patient might have little syndrome, L-I-D-D-L-E, little uh, syndrome. You, you mentioned something earlier, Dr. Harrison, about milk alcohol syndrome. Would you please elaborate more on that? Yes. So in the past, folks who had symptoms of peptic ulcer disease, mm. they used to consume milk along with sodium bicarbonate. Which baking soda? Yeah, baking soda. You're kidding. I'm not. Oh. So this would cause, you know, uh, an alkalosis. And that is why the term milk alkali syndrome comes about. And having mentioned that, folks who actually take excessive calcium can also get something very similar to a milk alkali syndrome. Is it because they take something like calcium carbonate? Correct. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. You know, this is all making so much sense now, Dr. Harrison. So we've talked about, um, you know, assessing, always uh, stressing the physical exam. Mm -hmm. The next thing is, could you elaborate on diuretic use, uh, barters and Gittleman uh, as causes for metabolic alkalosis? Sure. Absolutely. So diuretic use is one of the most common causes for metabolic alkalosis. And as I mentioned before, Gittleman's and barters are rare. If you consider the structure of a nephron, Barter syndrome functions very similar to loop diuretics acting on the ascending thick limb of Henle, where one sodium, one potassium, and two chloride ions are reabsorbed. There is a defect in the protein with Barter syndrome, and hence you have increased urinary chloride, normal blood pressure with elevated renin and aldosterone levels with increased calcium levels, urinary calcium levels. Remember, you use frusamide or Lasix in folks with increased volume, such as congestive heart failure, renal failure, who have hypercalcemia, right? Mm. Now, sodium and chloride are reabsorbed in the early distal convoluted tubule, and the absence of that protein results in Gittleman syndrome. The function is very similar to how thiazide diuretics work. Once again, you have elevated urine chloride levels, normal blood pressure, elevated renin and aldosterone, but low urine calcium levels. Remember, thiazides cause calcium reabsorption in the tubules. Beautiful. And I think we exploit this uh, also in gout. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Ah, see, all these connections. Maybe we can have an episode on gout too. <laughs> Absolutely. You could like. All right. So our patient uh, is one with metabolic alkalosis. Both renin and aldosterone were elevated with an aldosterone and renin ratio of significantly less than 20s to 1. Therefore, we are looking for causes for secondary hyperaldosteronism, such as renal artery stenosis. Absolutely, Paul. Given his age, the risk factors, that could be a possibility for the secondary hyperaldosteronism, renal artery stenosis. It's perfect. So what are your thoughts on a high urine chloride with a low normal BP? So if you have a high urine chloride and a low normal volume status, low normal blood pressure without any extracellular fluid or edema, the most common cause in this category is diuretic use. Once and only once this has been ruled out, then you consider or you could consider Barter syndrome or Gittleman syndrome. Barter syndrome, as I mentioned, behaves very similar to frusamide, while Gittleman's behaves more like thiazide diuretics. Remember, the urine chloride in these conditions is going to be elevated. 
What are your thoughts on the high urine chloride with a normal high BP blood pressure? Sure. So with a high urinary chloride, high blood pressure, extracellular fluid is often absent. One needs to consider mineralocorticoid excess, both endogenous and exogenous, along with little syndrome in the differential. Hmm. So question is, mm -hmm. why isn't there edema with the aforementioned? That's a great question, Paul. This occurs actually because of a mechanism that is called aldosterone escape. With excessive aldosterone, sodium and bicarbonate are reabsorbed. And then the excess of sodium then causes a salt diuresis, and hence there is no edema in these states. That actually makes sense. Good. Dr. Harrison, this is a very succinct and thorough review of metabolic alkalosis and the workup. For you folks out there in the interwebs and uh, the podcast world of the other verses, I want to say thank you so much for your support and for tuning in. I hope that this helped you in your journey to becoming a better physician. There's more to just metabolic alkalosis than looking at bicarb. There's an entire workup. And I think Dr. Harrison has shown us that it is definitely possible for us to thoroughly evaluate our patients. Wouldn't you say that, Dr. Harrison? Yes, I agree, Paul. And thank you for your kind words. Please tune in on our next episode, Podcast 5. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>